Good morning. You ready to get in the Word? I'm going to ask you to turn to two places. Luke chapter 2, that's where we'll begin. And then we're going to go to Matthew and look at that account this morning also. So in Luke chapter 2, we want to talk, talk this morning on He Knows Our Need. And I'm pulling these titles from O Holy Night, from which we got the thrill of hope. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be re- registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word, and we're thankful, we're so thankful that you speak to us, Lord. We begin to learn your voice. You said those, your sheep know your voice, they hear you, and they follow you. Lord, that is our desire, that we would hear you, and I pray, Lord, you'd help us to spend the time needed to begin to know your voice even in a a deeper personal way, because you want to speak to us. You've given to us your word. We love your word. We want to be hearers of the word, not doers. We want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We ask, Lord, this morning again, as we're going through the word here, you would speak to us, we would hear, we'd respond appropriately obediently, and Lord, we are praying also for anyone who is listening today, does not yet know you, that today would be their day of salvation. They'd hear your voice, and they'd respond to you as their good shepherd. So bless, I pray the word now, in Jesus' name, amen. So the thrill of hope comes from O Holy Night. O Holy Night reflects on Jesus' birth and the redemption of humanity. It's filled with scriptural truth. So last week we read verse 1. This morning I'm going to read verse 2, and then next week we'll read verse 3. And I hope in doing so, as we sing the song, it'll begin to have a little more meaning because these songs are packed with such truths that are so good when you understand them even more. So in chapter, chapter, verse 2, it goes like this. Led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle, We stand, referring to the shepherds and this manger that was an animal feeding trough. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. Now, my understanding is that these magi were visiting later on in Jesus' life. Some would say no, it was when he was first born, but I'll leave that for you to to, uh, go over. I point you to Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 and 16 is why I would believe it's later on in his life. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials, born to be our friend. Our friend is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's the title from today. He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. In other words, Jesus experienced all the weakness of humanity. Behold again your king. Before him lowly bend. Behold your king, before him bend. And I say, amen. 
We bow before him. So the word hope is commonly used to mean wish, like I hope so. But as we looked at last week, the hope we are talking about is not a hope so, it's a no so. My faith in Jesus is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My faith in him, I eagerly wait for it with perseverance, the hope that he gives to me. My hope not only desires something good in the future, my hope expects it. This is Christian hope. My hope is a confident expectation, being fully convinced that what God has promised, he is also able to perform. So, little story. The director of a medical clinic told of a terminally ill young man who came in for his usual treatment. A new doctor who was on duty said to him casually and cruelly, you know, don't you, that you won't live out the year? As the young man left, he stopped by the director's desk and wept and said, that man took away my hope. I guess he did, replied the director. Maybe it's time for a new one. Commenting on this incident, a man wrote, is there a hope when hope is taken away? Is there hope when the situation is hopeless? Here's the deal. That question leads us to Christian hope. For in my Bible, hope is no longer a passion for the possible. It's a passion for the promise. And that's our hope. The thrill of hope is not in us. It's in God. My faith is in him. Paul the Apostle said it this way. He said it and he prayed it best. We'll go through, we'll we'll include this every time in our introduction, these four studies. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, the Bible, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have what? Hope. Romans again, chapter 15 and verse 13. Now, Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He includes many, many of the elements to hope there. The Holy Spirit, believing, many of the things that come that are ours because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So he knows our need. Number one, I'm going to give you three, and then we're going to look at three, the three, three things under our need for hope. But first of all, he knows our need for him. The question is, do we? You see, God knows all our needs, and God meets all our needs. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, he cares for his creation and takes care of all his creatures. God does that. But God reminds us of our need for him because we repeatedly live as though we don't. So the children of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 3, we read this. So God allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Remember, they would go out and every morning God told them, go out and get the manna, except on the day before the Sabbath, get two days. And they would every day collect the manna as God's provision for them for that day. And so he says, he allowed you to hunger He met that need with this stuff called manna, or what is it, that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. 
that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Simply put, life is much more than physical existence. Life is centered in spiritual relationship with our Creator. That is so hopeful. In other words, God provides even though we don't know how. He takes care of us. He makes sure, though, in all of his dealings with us, that he's wanting to draw us to himself, knowing that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why I say, eat up the Bible. Every day, there should be time that you spend with your Bible, receiving your spiritual nourishment. Every time Jesus was tempted by the devil, he said, it is what? Written. It is written. It is written. Our strength spiritually against all the forces of wickedness comes through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, you might go, well, I don't know how that works. Well, that's okay. God said it's true. <laughs> so as we take in the Bible, as we're reading our Bibles, as we're taking in that spiritual food, it's just like you take in the food and you're not quite sure how all those things digest and get, but they bring nourishment to your body physically. The Word of God does the same thing in your spiritual life, which is your relationship with God. So he knows our need, first of all, for him. Secondly, he knows our need for help from him. Can I hear an amen? We need help. Now, you might look at that as the... the, the maybe almost the, the less significant things of living life, but what we need him mostly for is to save our souls from sin. We need him. For, he knows that our need to be reconciled to him. And so, he is not imputing our trespasses to us. We were dead in sin, powerless to help ourselves. Jesus came for us in all our helplessness, to redeem us from sin, death, and hell. To redeem us from the penalty of sin. To redeem us from the power of sin in this life. And to redeem us eventually from the very presence of sin in glory. That's what he came to accomplish. And on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he accomplished the whole thing. And we are just now following him. And he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. That is hope. Jesus sets us free by giving us a new life. Born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Led by the Holy Spirit of God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And live, we're safe and secure in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Friends, there is no greater hope than the Christian faith and receiving Christ as our Savior. Jesus, this is eternal life that they, that they may know you. He's praying this. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He said, I've glorified you in the earth. I've finished the work that you've given me to do. That's how it happened, through his sacrifice. So he knows our need for him, for help. And here's the one I want to focus on a little bit this morning. He knows our need for hope. Jesus came for us in all our hopelessness to be our hope. If there's no virgin birth of Jesus, listen, there's no hope in the manger. If there's no sinless life of Jesus, 
There is no hope in him as the Savior. If there's no death of Jesus, there's no hope in Jesus for the forgiveness we receive through him. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope beyond the grave to be with him. But may I say to you, there was a virgin birth. There was a sinless life. There was a death and burial. And there was a resurrection of one person, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born into, by, the, by the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem to be our Savior. Can I hear an amen of hope? Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. A man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked a boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy replied, 18 to nothing. We're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I'll bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. I say, amen. <laughs> get up to bat, man. It may seem like you're way behind. No, get up to bat. Exercise your faith. Believe in Christ. Put all your hope in him. Don't waver. Because he who promised is faithful. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Wow. So look at verse 6 again. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, as far as I can tell, Joseph and Mary led pretty normal lives until God began to intervene. <laughs> and if God's intervening consciously, there's a lot of hope in that. And he brought something so meaningful, such anticipation in their lives by coming to them and speaking to them into their lives. So I say, baby Jesus in the manger, God is in it. You see, we, we need to have hope in what's happening. Hope keeps us going. So here's Mary and Joseph, and God intervenes in what's happening. Now, what's happening in your life? Let me tell you, hope keeps you going. That's what does. Jesus in the manger, God's in it. That's God in the manger. But as God's promised us, he's in it. Whatever's happening in your life, he's in it. And so go to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 now. Let's look at this Matthew's account of what happened. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Messiah was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had sexual relations, before they were married, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Look at this last week. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which Matthew does this over and over. He's, it's a Jewish gospel, and he's pointing back to all the prophecies that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. So next week, we'll talk about the incarnation, John 1, 1 through 18, if you would read that before, and just read John chapter 1. goes on here, verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, it wasn't a bad dream, it was a vision by God to him, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, this is a tender story here. Joseph loved Mary. He was a just man. He, she meant a lot to him. And so when he finds out she's pregnant, that was a shameful, disgraceful thing in that culture. But he didn't want to put her away publicly. So he's looking for a way. How can I not have Mary have to go through all that shame? And so then the angel came and spoke to him. Mary's also bearing a tremendous emotional burden herself, this young girl. She's now sinful outcast because of what was found out. But I'll tell you, heavenly visits have a whole has a way of changing meaning and anticipation overnight. When God speaks into those happenings in our lives. So here's what happens. And God's in it. A government decree would mean an 80-mile, four- to five-day journey with Joseph and his pregnant, espoused wife. And I think, no problem. God's in it. It just changes everything. And we need hope in what's happening. That God's in it. And so, God moves the heart of a powerful governor... To issue a decree that moved millions of people all over the place just to get two young people to Bethlehem to fulfill a 700-year prophecy by the prophet Micah. God's in it, my friends. He, it says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he, God, turns it wherever he wishes. They think they're these tough, powerful people. No. God is sovereignly and providentially working out his plan like we looked at in Job. So he knows our need. Now, when I first started reading this, I was thinking, you know, God knows our need for government. In fact, Romans 13.1 says, governments are appointed by God. We need them. But then I thought, no, no. <laughs> The series is on the thrill of hope. And to talk about government these days doesn't seem very hopeful to me. So we're not going to talk about our need for government, okay? So here Joseph stays with Mary. She gives birth to Jesus. They marry, they're together, and husband and wife, they're going through life knowing that God's in it. My friends, you married couples, we need to continually bring God 
right into the center of our marriages. That threefold cord that is not easily broken. Because I'll tell you, there are, there are forces against marriage and family today like never before. We need to keep Jesus in the center of our marriage. How do we do that? We keep him in the center of our own personal lives, husband and wife. And that threefold cord that's not easily broken. So they stayed together. They bore the shame and reproach, not just then, but through their lives. In fact, the, the religious leaders say, well, he was born of fornication. And a lot of things were said about Jesus. But listen, they had an encounter with God, and they knew God was with them. God was in it. And that, my friends, is the hope in what's happening. God's in it. Now, painful at times? Absolutely. Absolutely. Worth it? Absolutely. Why? Their receptivity and obedience to God was their hope in what was happening. You see, we can't always be hopeful if we're disobedient to God. But as we're receptive to God's word and obedient to what he says, that is a fortitude of hope. It's a fortress of hope. There is nothing that has greater impact on our hope then a receptivity and obedience to God no matter what the consequences. Again, center in our lives, centered in our marriages is a receptivity and obedience to God no matter what the consequence. Mary said, be it unto me. Joseph said, got up and he did what God told him to do. May God help us, amen? You see, hope is brutally bankrupt when God is not in it. There's nothing there. It's empty. Because without God, there's only human hope. There's only the hope of the world. Now, some have said that you are the meaning. That it's a waste of time to be asking the question about meaning when you are the answer. Joseph Campbell said, quote, life has no meaning. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning, unquote. Nelson Henderson said this, quote, The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit, unquote. Alan Alda, some of you know that actor. He said, quote, The meaning of life is life, unquote. I'm going, eh? You see, if I alone am the meaning, then if I'm honest with myself, Life is one big unanswerable question. That's what it is. I am a totally lost person because I can find no hope in myself. I only see a vast, barren emptiness void of any resource to save my soul. I must despairingly admit I am not and have never been the captain of my soul. The book of Ecclesiastes describes life without God. It digs over the ground and stares into the abyss. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is emptiness and chasing after the wind. If, God, if God's not in it. 
Human beings, you and I, are not animals. We don't stand around in the field with no worries. We are creating the image of God. Our spirits are restless and yearning with ambition. We have desires for pleasure, knowledge, and meaning. We believe in justice and we want to know the future. Animals don't do that. Not only yearnings, but we have moral values. We battle with our conscience. We have this innate awareness that ultimately we are accountable for what we do. But if there's no God, then who are we accountable to? And if it's just ourselves or it's just me, then why can't I find peace? Why can I not find hope? I'll tell you why. It's not there apart from God and knowing him. You see, a personal God is the only answer that makes sense in all the nonsense. There's a God. And aren't you thankful for our God of hope? who fills us with joy and peace just in believing and trusting him. Augustine put it this way, my heart is restless until I find my rest in thee. That's hope. Or the psalmist put it this way, Psalm 62, 5, my soul waits silently for God alone, speaking to himself, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This little word, say, that means just ponder that. Think on that. He knows our need for hope. Hope in what happening. It keeps us going. When we look at Jesus in the cradle, God's in that cradle. God is in us. He's with us. And he was in it. He came into the world to be with us and dwell among us. We'll look at this, that next week. So not only, want, not only hope in what's happening, but hope from heaven. Can I hear an amen on that one? Not only hope, but hope that comes from heaven. And in, this, in the shepherd story, that's what I'm seeing here. There is this amazing, amazing glory in the announcement of an invitation to come see Jesus. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Now they're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now the shepherds were poor. They were considered outcasts. But this is to whom the angels came. And the behold, angel of the Lord stood before them, not anyone else, them, the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You, I think it's just identifying them, these shepherds, this, this small group of men. To you, we'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. Good tidings and great joy to all people. Listen, not just the elect and not just a few, to all people. The invitation is that through the gospel, we would know the goodwill and peace of God. But it's an invitation to all people. 
So in Luke chapters 1 and 2, we have, as it were, both chapters, song, Elizabeth, after song, Mary, after song, Zechariah. Now, they probably weren't exactly songs, but you read them, and it just makes your heart begin to take a tune in. And now the angel in, the, the angel in heaven worshiping God and heralding the good news, the gospel. The glory of God began with an angel, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, the angel had a whole host around praising God. You see, we need, he knows our need for hope from heaven. Listen, hope gives glory to God. Hope gives glory to God. And here we have good tidings of great joy. Listen, God invites you into it. He invites you into these glad tidings of great joy by believing in Christ. And our hope is in the gospel. And so, suddenly there was with the angel the multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill to men. These, these as it were, these, these songs and the skies lit up with the glory of God proclaiming the goodness of God and peace with God through Jesus Christ. See, we need hope from heaven. It's in the gospel. It's in the good tidings of great joy that God invites each of us into through Christ. Hope from heaven. Hope gives glory to God. Look at verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the babe, lying in a manger. Wasted no time getting here, even though it was night, didn't stop them. Even though when they got there, it's very possible they weren't welcomed, but they came at the tidings of good news and the glory of God. And then, verse 17, when they had seen him, they made widely known the same which was told them concerning this child. So they couldn't wait to get to Bethlehem, and they couldn't wait to leave and tell everyone about what they saw. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Notice verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is as much worship as praising God loudly is what's going on in our hearts as we're thinking on the things of God. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, Jesus' birth was really pretty low-key, except for a few people. And those few people was anything but low-key. They had this hope that they had heard from heaven, and that changes everything. So hope from heaven that gives glory to God. And the final one, he knows our need for hope for our hearts. Look at verse 21. When eight days were completed with the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now in the days of her purification, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So according to Jewish law, a woman became ceremonially unclean at the time of giving birth to a child. On the eighth day, male infants were circumcised, after which the mother was unclean for an additional 33 days. There's a lot of questions what that means. I believe, at least in part, 
that to God the womb is a sacred, holy place. So at the conclusion of this period, the mother offered a sacrifice, and the firstborn son was to be presented to the Lord. In other words, Mary and Joseph were godly people, godly Jewish couple, keeping the laws of, that they knew. Now he introduces us to other very godly people, Simeon and Anna. Let's read on, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled of those things which were spoken of him. Again, that that little verse, they're thinking deeply. What does all this mean? Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36. Now there is one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman woman was a widow of about 84 years years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers. What a way to go out. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she's now herself speaking and telling people. So Mary and Joseph, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Mary and Joseph are just taking it all in. That's what we're seeing here. Into their hearts as these things are going on. They're overflowing with love as any parent would for their son Jesus. They're wondering about his future, wondering about all these things mean, pondering these things in their hearts. We need hope for our hearts. Now notice in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to custom of the feast. So then if you read the story, they they go there for it. They come, Jesus is with them. They look for him for three days. They finally find him. They're blown away because he's sitting there with these religious leaders and he's questioning them. And and they're blown away by how much Jesus, how Jesus could answer such questions of such depth. But notice in verse 51. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But, here it is again, his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So we really don't know anything about Jesus' life from his birth, 12 years old, and that's it, until he made his public appearance in ministry. John the Baptist, pretty much the same thing. So here's what I see in this. Mary, as she's raising Jesus and Joseph, Joseph died at some point, we're not, we're not quite sure when, but together, 
I, they're, they're pondering the things, these amazing things that had happened when he was born, when he's 12 years old. All that they heard and seen, and she's pondering them in her heart, and particularly pointing to Mary. Listen, that's what parents do. Parents ponder. <laughs> What's going to become of my little boy? What's going to become my, my little girl? That's just the human side of it. What's his future going to be like? What's her future going to be? And oh, we hope for the best, don't we, parents? We hope for the best. It's just God-given as parents because God's a parent. Zacharias, when his tongue was loosed, says, we're going to call him John. And all the people go, hmm, that's interesting. There's nobody in your family named John. And immediately his tongue's loosed and he begins praising God. And all, it says there that they kept them, those things in their hearts. They're pondering the parents. And we do that same thing. When we know of other parents and their kids, we're wondering, what's going to happen? How's it going to go? And as life goes on and years begin to pile up, and we see what happens and see the choice. Oh, how it brings to mind the young years, the other days. When all, and, we, and we look at a picture and we go, oh, I wish they were still like six months old, a year old. It's just a part of what parents do. Jacob, concerning Joseph's dreams, his beloved son Joseph. Genesis tells us his brothers envied him, but his father kept these matters in his heart. That's what parents do. So first of all, you have pondering parents holding these things and keeping it. But then you have, well, I believe, Mary particularly, but Joseph to some point, they're pondering the prophecies that they had heard, that we just read. And so as Mary sees her 12-year-old son baffling the religious leaders, when Jesus was baptized and John baptized and the dove comes down, the voice from heaven as she hears the gracious words that proceed from her son's mouth, as he taught as never a man spoke like him, and then the growing antagonism and hatred of the lead leaders for, toward Jesus, her son, and then witnessing his sham trial, the cruel mocking, the scourging, carrying the cross, collapsing under it as he's on his way to be crucified. And there's the mother. Then as she is mercilessly stretched out and nailed to that cross. And I believe Mary was looking on. And then the cross is raised up and plunged into that hole. And everything just exas incredible agony. And for six hours watching. Hope, listen, is God's great gift in the person of his son. You see, this child is destined. Jesus' destiny was that cross. Jesus died to save you and me. The cross is something above all other things we can never ponder enough. It's hope in our hearts. It's hope as God's gift to us. 
We will never exhaust the depth of God's love demonstrated on the cross for you and for me. That's the hope of our hearts. It's Christ crucified, but then rising from the dead. Jesus died for me, and Jesus died for you. We can't celebrate Christmas without talking about Easter. You can't look at the cradle without looking at the cross. And that's what Simeon was saying. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And as Mary stood there, and Jesus says, Mother, here is your son to John. John, son, here is your mother. He's crying out on the cross. And then eventually, he breathes, after six hours, he breathes his last and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's dead. Dead. And I see Mary turning with John. Hopeless. Except that that light of her relationship with God kept her going and waiting. And so for his disciples also. And so Romans says, when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps even for a good man, someone might even dare die. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the hope for our hearts is that Jesus died for our sins. So he knows our need. We have need for hope in what's happening. God's in it. We have need for hope from heaven. God's with us. We need hope for hope from our hearts. God sent his son to save us. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. And Jesus, we thank you for the hope that you are through all of time and eternity. Our great hope is in you. So as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, my brothers and sisters, if you just pray, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus yet. You've never come to him in repentance. In other words, you're ready to turn from your old life because you know you're not right with God. You know you have a need to be forgiven. You know there's a peace that's not there. There's an emptiness that's not filled. There's a hope that you don't know anything about because you don't have a relationship with God yet. That door, Jesus said, I am the door. So in order to have this relationship to know eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ we sent, it's important that you understand what you need to do in responding to that gospel. That's number one. Here, just simply three things. I'm going to ask you to raise up your hand. I'm going to ask you to stand up and as you walk up to the tables. By raising your hand, you're saying, yes, I today want to ask God to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all the things that, have, that are in the way of my relationship with him and to forgive me of all my sin. You raise your hand saying, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus. And then secondly, to stand up is to be obedient. Receiving and obedient to the gospel. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. It's so important you understand what he's saying. It's simply this. When you obey, when you make your confession before people, 
That's when God wipes away all the fears, all the excuses, all the reasons you haven't up to this point obeyed. And you stand before him saying, yes, I am going to give my life to you in repentance and faith. When you do that, God will come right before you and behind you. And he will usher you into this new life he promises of being born again. And you need not fear anymore. And you won't because you've obeyed the gospel. That's why it's important. So just if that's you and you, you today, you want to get right with God. You want to say, I need my sins forgiven. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I want to know that my eternity is secure in the hands of a loving Father. Would you just slip up your hand and please keep that up so that I can see it? Because I want to pray for you and I want to also invite you to go to one of the tables where someone will pray for you today. And we're praying just another moment. Yes, I want to say yes to Jesus today. That scripture there for if anyone is in Christ he's a new creation all things have passed away all things become new glorious passage so let's worship the Lord would you stand let's worship the Lord together